some loose ends in terms of the question of Kfiya and whether there are other views other than the Rambam, challenges on the Rambam, and maybe some of the views that may be different may seem the same. So just to discuss a little bit of that, I have here a safer, a very beautiful safer, a difficult topic, but a beautiful safer about it, called Elu Shakof and Lahotzi. So this has a lot about the notion of Kfiya Baget. It's written by Yosef Goldberg, who's a Dayan in the Bezdin Harabani in Yerushalayim. And he has a, a lot to say about his Yonim. And he goes through also various shittas, but before sharing what he says, so just to first pose the question, what shittas are the same and what shittas are different? So when we looked at the Rambam, and we saw his Pintaliyid theory, so the question became, what exactly does he mean by that? So does he mean to say that we don't really care what this guy actually says because it's all about his inner Pintaliyid, and therefore that comes to represent the Ratzon. It's also an interesting question. Are we saying that the Pintaliyid is the Ratzon? So whatever the Halacha is, that comes to provide the Ratzon. The Chazanish emphasizes that for the Rambam's position, we still understand, and this seems pretty much Mokra, that we know that there are times when Abedin will say it's a mitzvah see, but still you don't have kfia. So if kfia is connected to the ratzon of the mitzvah, according to the Rambam, so it doesn't seem like every mitzvah qualifies. It's got to be a mitzvah on a certain level here. So we need the fact that Bezdin is supplying a ratzon to supplant his lack of ratzon. So because Bezdin has declared that this is a situation of kfia. So that allows that kfia to be considered baratzon. But if it was a mitzvah without a declaration of kfia, so apparently that's not going to be enough, which is not so obvious because you would think, okay, so if the ratzon to do the right thing is enough, so how come those other mitzvah situations aren't also enough? And that also becomes a question as far as the application to other situations and to taking the Rambam's logic towards other mitzvahs which is also a significant point. So one question is, are we saying that basically it's the Ratzon that is represented by the Pintaliyid and that takes over? Or are we saying, no, that at the end of the day, he decides? And therefore, we can consider that to be the bottom line. That when he said Rotsani, it's actually at that point, he's given in, even though he was screaming until now. But at that point, he recognizes that he has a mitzvah, and therefore, it's considered to be a done deal. So that has implications, because we also mentioned the other day, the suffolk of the Chanda Shlomo, that does this only apply to situations like get or mecher, when somebody sells something, there, there's an immediate follow-up. We see, okay, he said rotsani, and here's the get. So you're forced to sell something, he immediately turns over the product and takes the money. So that, we know, works, but maybe only because there is that immediate follow-up. In other words, maybe it's because we assume that he, in the end, agrees. And he shows that he agrees by the fact that he does it. But if it was an acceptance for the future, which doesn't necessarily have any visual sign of being 
followed through. So then maybe not. And if you recall, we saw that the Chem Shlomo had that suffix and said that the Gemara about Kafal and Harkigigis should tie into that because there it was about a future acceptance and maybe that wouldn't necessarily work if it's about a final agreement to go through. But if it's just about saying that the Pintel Yid is going to sign on, so then maybe you could understand that it applies to the future also. So there are other Rishonim who do seem to say that it's about the assumption that in the end he was Nisratzah. In the end he agreed. And whether the Rambam is agreeing with them or disagreeing with them, so we don't necessarily know. And that gives us two perspectives on the Rambam. But one view, let's focus on for a moment, is the Tosfus. Remember, we gave this on the list a while ago, but the Tosfus on Daphne Chesim in Belabasra where the Gemara talks about the idea of this notion that if somebody is forced to sell something, so then the sale is, at the end of the day, valid. And there is a distinction between that and matana, that if somebody forces an individual to give a gift, so we don't know that that's any different from being held up at gunpoint. The fact that he gives the gift is because he has to, so we don't know that it's necessarily agreeing. When it comes to Mecher, there is an exchange. So, okay, at the end of the day, there was this exchange. He was saying he didn't want to do it until now. But once there is this exchange, so then let's assume that he finally agreed. So Tosfus, if you got a chance to see, so Tosfus raises the issue that how do we compare Get or Korban? We'll focus on Get. How do we compare Get to Mecher? If the assumption is that when there is a mecher, there is an exchange, so that's something we can look at. So how does that align with the giving of a get? Right, you saw this, Tostas? So Tostas has basically two answers, really concludes with one. But what are the answers of Tostas? And one answer was that because there is essentially an exchange, because in a sense, when the man gives a get, so he is profiting. How is he profiting? Yeah? He's going to have to give time, it's like the time, clothing, like shares, 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 shares. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, yeah. The, right. He doesn't give stuff anymore. So what it's interesting translating is time. That could either be euphemistic or it could be literal. Because Rosh uh, Hashanah quotes from his father that he's uh, explained that ona means time literally, but it also means in general that it's not just about the more direct implications, but that there's a mitzvah for husband to spend time with his wife overall. So that's a part of the marital obligation, but certainly when it comes to sharing sus, when it comes to the clothing and the general sustenance obligation, so he's exempted from that once he gives the get. So maybe we should say that it's comparable to a sale. Right? Could you say that it makes sense because by the sale, say you're gaining something, but by the by the get, you're there's a you're taking away from having to give. Could that make a difference? You're not giving anything, but you're just, you're taking away uh, uh, your obligation to give. And therefore... So you're, so you're not paying. As right. opposed to, uh, uh, it is you're getting money. This is, is, I'm saving money because I'm not paying. So yeah, that is different. Although, I'll mention a comparison in a moment, but what do you want to do with that difference? You're right. No, different. I'm just curious if that makes a difference. It does make a difference. But at the end of the day, Tosfus isn't satisfied with that answer anyway. Now, why is Tosfus not satisfied with that answer? Because... It should be true any time he gets divorced. So if we're assuming that 
this kfiya is dependent on there being a actual chiyuv, and that it's a situation of ma'usa kedin. So why do we need it to be only under those circumstances? If the whole point is that it's a trade-off because he becomes absolved of his obligations, so that that would be true no matter what the divorce circumstances are. Right? Oh, so we're saying that because the sale is final, uh, I was going to say people, the sale is the same thing, but the sale we say differently. So it's also saying we should say differently by, by, by again, Rusha also? Well, I saying that the sale we know is valid because even though he was resisting, but at the end of the day, he gave this item and he accepts the payment. So maybe we can call that an indication that he so settled the It still has all the properties of regular, of regular sale. So it sounds like this has the properties of a sale because he gives a get, and in return, he gets exempted from these responsibilities. So you're saying because of that, maybe we should say it to get, again, Musa works. Oh, that's the question. It tells yeah. who says, so then why not a get Musa? So why is that not true about any get? So why is this limited to a situation where there's a chiyav? Let's just say any time a get is compelled, so at the end of the day, it's, we'll assume that he went along with it because he gets this trade off. Doesn't this come back to Lashma a little bit in terms of the actual intentions? Like a sale, like, you know, like, it's not, we don't, we don't want these, like, high holistic standards when it comes to a sale. So that is certainly relevant, right? The fact that we have greater obligations, whether it's Lashma, Lashma is maybe limited to how the get is created. There's may be issues there also. But assuming he also has to give it, Willingly, we'll call it that. So that is a higher standard. And for the Rambam, at least, he puts the Rotsa'ani as a requirement that's not there by Mecha. So there is that difference. Yeah, I would so, say even then, the Pesukim the, 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 the talk about the fact that, 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 he, that he, he would want to get the word skill. Like, yeah, in, in Mata, um, Chayme, Chayme, right, something, something like that. Right. Yeah, I should have the word in front of me, but the, the Pesukim even implies right. that there's some sort of, like, Mata, first of all, there's the, the, the husband, like, actually wants it. There's something there that he just... Correct. He, that, not, that's how know. we were understanding the extra Ratzon requirement. Yeah. So clearly there's different levels here. But Tosus raises this issue that either we could have said it's a trade-off, but the trade-off doesn't really explain it because then that should apply to a Ged Musa Shalom Hadin also. So Tosus concludes by saying that Kol Dabar Shehu Mechuyiv La'asoso Harehu Kemecher that anything that a person is actually obligated to do, so that is comparable to a sale. So, what does that mean? How do you relate to that idea? It's saying that there's a chiyuv, and therefore we can call it sale-like. So this relates also to what you were asking. I'll tell you why. Because you could draw a comparison here, perhaps. This is what it's getting at, I'm not sure. But there is a sugya that appears in Sefer's Babakama and also in the Dharam, for those who were a few months ago learning Dafyomi. There is a very mysterious sugya called the Pruta de Rav Yosef. <coughs> and that is a, really a lot to figure out about, but just to give the basics. So, for example, the Gemara it comes up in a few contexts, but the Gemara raises the question that if somebody finds lost property, Somebody has a mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda on there. So part of the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda is a chiyuv shmir. That until you are able to return the property, so then you are obligated to watch it. You will enter into the category of shmira. And the notion of Hashavah Saveda is a fascinating concept in general. has all kinds of criteria that are open to being investigated. There's a lot of very fascinating concepts, but first 
up, the Gemara wants to know, the Gemara itself asks, so we know that the different Shomrim have different levels of liability. So there is a distinction, for example, between a Shomer Chinam and a Shomer Sacher. That one who gets paid for watching an item is on a higher level of liability than one who's watching something for free. So what would you call a Shomer Aveda? Is a Shomer Aveda a Shomer Chinam or a Shomer Sacher? Okay, so the Gemara has this question, and the first side is that he should be a Shomer Chinam because not getting paid. So if the standard is that a person is becoming compensated for the Shmira, so then that would not seem to be true for a Shomer Aveda. However, the Gemara then offers a different possibility that we should see him as a Shomer Sacher. So why should it be considered a Shomer Sacher? Taka, on the surface, he did just right. He's not getting paid. So the Gemara has two ways to explain it. One way is the very striking concept of a Prut of the Rav Yosef. What does Prut of the Rav Yosef mean? And this has implications for so many different sugyas. But in a sense, he is getting an opportunity benefit. He's not actually being given cash but he is saving money, and that comes to his benefit. How is he saving money? So here it's particularly striking because it's such an unusual situation, and one that itself brings up a lot of questions. But let's say he is involved in watching this item actively, and while he's doing that, an Ani comes and says, could I have some stuff? So because there is a rule of osik the mitzvah, patum in a mitzvah, somebody who's involved in a mitzvah is going to be exempt from other mitzvahs. So therefore, he's going to be exempt from having to pay this ani. So the pruta that he would have given to an ani, now he gets to save, and therefore, it's a net profit for him. And it's a fascinating concept, which you could probably ask many questions about. The fact, first of all, that it's only theoretical and that it's a highly unlikely situation that's already enough to draw your attention. But beyond that, it has implications for the sugi of Osek and Mitzvah, Patum and Mitzvah. So many hours of shurim you could give about Prut and Yosef. You know, the idea that you're a Patur under those circumstances that Rishonim talked about also, because normally the assumption is that if you're wearing tzitzis, you don't become pater from all mitzvahs, saying, okay, you're also a mitzvah. That would be quite counterproductive to the spirit of wearing tzitzis. So the assumption is, many Rishonim assume that you have to, some Rishonim assume that it has to be a mitzvah that you can't do both, that you can't do both at the same time, so presumably you can wear tzitzis and do other mitzvahs at the same time. Other Rishonim actually don't go that far, and they think there's a tour even if it's possible, but still, presumably, it's got to be at least somewhat of a challenge, that it's got to be at least somewhat difficult. So if there's a mitzvah that's completely passive, like wearing tzitzes, so then it's hard to imagine that that should pop you from anything else. And I would note also that the language of the Gemara is not that Hamakayim mitzvah is patim and a mitzvah, but rather... Osek the mitzvah. So even if it might be possible for you to squeeze in both things, but you have to at least be somewhat parud. You have to at least be somewhat weighed down by the mitzvah. 
So that presumably is a minimum. So the fact that you found an item and it's in your house locked in the safe, so where is that Osek Mitzvah? So the Rishonim explained that it's got to be presumably that it's a kind of an Aveda that takes some effort to maintain and to preserve, especially, let's say, if it's an animal that needs to be fed and needs to be taken care of at some time. So let's say what it means is that you found somebody's ox, like the Torah describes, the primary examples of Hashavah Aveda, and therefore you now have to watch an ox, which is a time-consuming profession. So while you're in the middle of taking care of this ox, so then an ani comes and asks you for some staka. So you're a putter for that, and that's also not so obvious, even after we say that you are osek, the mitzvah, so it could be a ptur. It's not so obvious that you should be putter from staka because of reasons of osek, the mitzvah. There are a number of achronim who make the case that osek, the mitzvah, does not exempt you from mitzvah, spinodim, lechavera. And that, there's a lot behind it, but probably this would even be the best example. And the idea being that if, let's say, a person is starving and is going to collapse, and he comes and asks me for some food, and I'm involved in taking the lulav or whatever, so I could say, well, listen, I'm not available now, so normally, could mean that God recognizes you can't be in two places at once, so he credits you with what you're not able to do, as if you did both of them. But if there's a human being who is about to collapse, so he can't credit you with your intentions. So a number of Achronim thought that there shouldn't be an exemption from this mitzvah ben and you think of anything, especially an Ani who's coming up and who needs the money right now, so maybe you shouldn't be potter. So the question is, it seems to contradict the principle of Pritadur Yosef. So there's a lot to look into there. It could also be that there's all kinds of different situations. This has major enough to mean as Lamaisa, because even though most of us don't have this very specific scenario happening that we're feeding somebody else's ox just when an Ani comes over and asks us, but collectors do time their pitch when you're in the middle of Tabin. So the question of Osek, the mitzvah, Patim and mitzvah, and its relationship with Staka is actually quite a discussion which has major practical ramifications for the rules that Shul's post and how they handle that because that is a very frequent situation. So the implications for that and the Sugit Prutur Yosef is itself an interesting question. But that's one explanation the Gemara gives. The other, yeah? What was the, before you mentioned the question about, but it's only theoretical, how, how, how are we... Well, the fact that we're crediting you with the profit that you're showing sure because it's a theoretical right. So that's itself. That. Uh, that's the very surprising. You wouldn't have guessed that, right? So, and that's why I want to say you said before about Sheikh Sosviona that you're not actually taking in any money; you're just saving an expense, which is a but it's a definite right. Which all the more so that's the point, right? That it is a distinction that is significant. So you would have thought it's significant, except when you see the halacha of fruit the Yosef. So that itself is less than that, because that's both passive and theoretical, and pretty unlikely. So the fact that that could count as a Shomer Sacher is itself interesting. Now, it could be that the threshold for being a Shomer Sacher is pretty low, maybe, and maybe for a transaction, you know, a little bit more. But that's itself interesting. But the other answer the Gemara has is Rachmana Meshapte, that it's considered to be a Shomer Sacher because God bound him up. God committed him to this, so 
That's the deal. It just shovers off. So that gives us some room to wonder that what do we mean in general here? Let's say in that case. So we're treating this person like a Shomer Safer because the mitzvah is there. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we consider the mitzvah like a payoff? So therefore, just like if somebody was giving him cash, so that would make him into a Shomer Safer, so, so to the Schar HaMitzvah is factored in here. And be a great pitch to get people to come to Minyan. I'll put up a sign, I'll pay people to come to Minyan. And then when they show up, so they've got the biggest scar of all. So is that the way to do it? Or are we saying, no, that we're not really making a claim that he's getting paid. But it doesn't matter, because that's just the rule, that a Shomer Sacher is held in a certain liability. And the Torah said that if you find an Aveda, you have to watch it. And the Torah is imposing that level of liability. So, bad luck to you. You're not actually getting paid here, but the nature of this chiyuv is calibrated at that higher rate. So, I wonder if this tosus of Baba Basra is open to the same kind of question. And it says that anything a person is mechuyiv to do, harehu kemecha, so that's considered to be a trade-off considered to be as if there's a transaction. So what does that mean? It's just mean because of the mitzvah, so you have no choice. So just like a mecher, one chooses because he's getting some kind of remuneration, so, so too a mitzvah is treated that way, even though it's in practice not happening. Or should we say that the schar is the payment? So what would you say about that? Do you see it as one way or another in terms of that tosis? So, the problem is, it seems to be open, if you want to say the first way that the mitzvah counts, so it seems to be open to the same questions, because not every mitzvah counts. So why doesn't every mitzvah count? Now, if the standard of being subject to kfiyah is necessary, which that we know, so, kol davar shum l'chuyiv so you have to be mechuyiv apparently at a certain level. It doesn't sound like it's just talking about the mitzvah points, the schar mitzvah coming to credit him. In general, there is a discussion about what the mitzvah is. When the Rambam talks about the mitzvah that the Pintul Yid is conforming to, so what is the mitzvah? Or what mitzvah are we talking about? So you could say that it's the mitzvah l'shmoa debre chachamim. The Gemara has that line, but whether that's where the Rambam is coming from, it's not clear. Some of the Nostra Kalim and the Rambam assume that that's coming off of that line, except the Gemara only has that as kind of a dechia. The Gemara just mentions that, oh, you can't derive from get to other things because in the context of a get, there's a mitzvah l'shmoa debre chachamim. Yeah? I mean, there's... Uh, there's a mit- I mean, this is what we talked about actually about like the first couple of shir, mm-hmm. but there's a mitzvah we get. Wait, but what is a mitzvah? So to say that it's the mitzvah in general is very problematic because, first of all, is that we, when we were looking at the Rambam back in the first week, that it seems like even though the Rambam codifies the mitzvah, Gerushin as a mitzvah from that pasuk, it sounds like from all other indications 
that he just means that as a halachically regulated concept, not as a obligation. So to say that that creates a, a mitzvah in that sense is harder, but especially we know that it's only, this kfiya is only going to be effective when there is a chiyuv that is on the level of kfiya. So that mitzvah, whatever mitzvah we spoke about on week one, is presumably not going to suffice. Well, we raised the question in that context, but we did bring it up then, that you know, the Rambam saying there's got to be some kind of mitzvah that's not only a mitzvah, but it's so clear that even somebody who's saying, I have no interest, we could say, sorry, you are obligated to do this, and therefore there's no level of volition there at all. Right? right so what we say the Mecher comparison is compared to mitzvahs that are here to do, or just... I mean, it's a cumulus. Is that well, also that's the question, right? Because that, that's what right. I'm saying, that it essentially leaves you open to the same question. Right. Because saying a mitzvah cumulus apparently can't be enough because we know that a get that's melusa shalom kedin is still going to be puzzle. And that's even a higher threshold than a cumulus. That's even when, a, if a bezin says a mitzvah lagarish, but it hasn't established that there's kvia, so then it's still not going to be enough. So when we talk about whether it's the Tosfus' version of a mitzvah, or the Rambam's version of the mitzvah, we have a pretty high threshold for a mitzvah. So just to recap, we have the Rambam's Pintaliyad, and we have Tosfus' statement that it's a reyu kemecher, that this is comparable to a mecher. But in both cases, we're really not sure what it means. Does it mean that because there is a schar, or does it mean that it's a trade-off? So in both situations, it's not going to be enough, because how will you account for the fact that a get shalom and hadin is still not going to work, even though that category includes situations where there is at least arguably some kind of a mitzvah. I wonder if, in either case, I don't know if you could say this either for the Rambam or for Tosfos, and just to clear, just to clarify, we don't know. Maybe Rambam and Tosfos agree. Right? So we saw some understand that the pintaliyid is just a way of saying that at the end of the day he agrees. So if he agrees, okay, we know that from a purchase because we see he takes the money and he gives the item. But how do we know that in the context of a get? So Tosus's conclusion here is it's because of the Mechuyah asoso. But what does that do? I wonder if on some level it's possible to say for both of them that it's the negative option, that if you're left with no choices, so then, that becomes a default ratzon. That when you have, you could say you have ratzon because of the schar mitzvah, but that should be a much broader category. So that should include even lower level mitzvahs, and certainly mitzvah legarish kind of situation. So what if we were to say it like this, that when there's no other option but to do this, it's such a chiv of that level, so then you can't claim you don't have a ratzon because there's just no other possibilities left for you. So therefore, the negative ratzon, the elimination of all other situations, leaves you with a default ratzon, and therefore that's enough for the transaction to go through. Perhaps. Maybe that might be one. And again, I don't know whether the Rambam and Tosfos are on the same page or whether that possibly could explain either of them, one or the other or both. But that's 
something to something to think about. And in terms of what the mitzvah is, so there the mitzvah could be the mitzvah of Shmuel Adivachanim. There's a Chesam Sofer, which we'll expand upon a little bit also. And there's some machlokis about this Chesam Sofer, that there's a Chesam Sofer that seems to understand that it's the mitzvah of the Ahav Torah Kamocha, which gets us again back to our first week material. But if the assumption is that we're dealing with a situation where the other spouse is suffering, and therefore that suffering is something you should identify with and you should feel like just like I wouldn't want to suffer so I wouldn't want my spouse to suffer so does that create a chiyuv in the absolute sense that one is able to work off of so there is some possibility along those lines that the Ahasuleya is the driving force and that was somewhat of a controversial point there is also a suggestion in some Yishanim, which we've seen a little bit, that maybe this correlates to one of the topics that we talked about last year, the topic of Kof and Almidah stone. That maybe we have a mechanism here that functions that way, of Kof and Almidah stone. Now, it's, it seems like an overlap here because we use stone in Chumash to talk about the worst kind of person. So here, if we're talking about a real magin who we're trying to throw the whole book at, so to call him a stomite, maybe fits from that perspective. But there's a more focused definition of midas stone that we saw last year that correlates to the idea of which would indicate that if there's something that another person will benefit from and you are not going to lose by providing. So sometimes... Bezdin can force, sometimes Bezdin should force the person to comply with that. So this may fit this definition, and some of you are showing they don't use the phrase exactly, but it sounds like that's what they're leading up to, that this is essentially a Kofram Midas Dome situation. Why? Not because it's the highest level of evil, so just like the stone people were destroyed, but simply this, this straight-out definition, that if it's a non-functional marriage, so the husband is not getting anything, out of staying in the situation. So therefore, that's no benefit to him to stay married, while for the wife, it's a clear benefit for her to be released. So to provide a benefit for someone which doesn't cost you anything, sometimes we find kofen is the relative is the relevant operative term. So maybe that's relevant here as well. Hi. So I guess two related questions on kind of opposite ends. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are the parameters of this? So like one example, let's say this person is a very mani- manipulative person mm-hmm. and they enjoy manipulating people. And so he gets enjoyment out of being able to manipulate his, 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 uh, his wife at the moment. Um, and then also maybe an example of, of someone who like, who just still loves his wife and, and just really like can accept the fact that, that he's getting divorced and like he feels that if they ever get divorced, he loses all hope. And so he'll, he'll and so he'll be getting you're, you're, you'll be in, you'll be giving him a negative feeling by ending the divorce because then he'll like, he'll lose hope and he'll be like very, like you know like someone who's uh, who's like still like kind of paranoid or thinks that there's still a shot or something like that. So, do parameters include those people or the, or is their benefit not really distinct enough? To tell you? All right, so those are actually two different questions and they're important questions because to do them separately because they really draw on separate things. So the second point was one that some Macron mentioned as a 
kasha on this. Right? The idea that there's a possibility of calling this a midah stone situation. So maybe it's not true. Maybe there is some kind of benefit to staying in the marriage in that sense of he loves her and that he wants to continue in that relationship to whatever extent. And maybe it does provide him with some benefit. In other words, we don't know that every such situation where kfiyah is applicable is already a situation where things are completely dead. Nowadays, when we talk about it, it's very often that's the case, that there's completely no relationship whatsoever, and they're living apart. And it's interesting, actually, just this may be a practical ramification. So nowadays, again, we don't actually use kfiyah when we try to resolve the situation, but the question of when kfiyah could be appropriate so there are certain categories, we haven't really seen these all, but in time for the sugya so specifically, but there are certain categories that the Gemara talks about, and it's a question whether to extrapolate from those categories or assume those are the categories. So a lot of the literature that you find in Shubhas today on this subject are trying to figure out certain other things that aren't mentioned in the Mishnayas and in the Gemaras, so can we derive from them that this would also be a situation of Kviya, or are we limited to what's listed? So Rav Shlita takes the perspective that they're describing certain kinds of categories and that you can learn out from them. So therefore, he understands that what the mission of the Gemara is talking about is something that makes a marriage not functional, so then one is able to be kofa. So therefore, he assumes that if a couple is not living together anymore, so then Eimachar and that functional Galo so then Kfiya could work. We don't operate based on that, but so as a theoretical point, that's something to consider. And that also goes to this issue. So if the couple's really not living together, so then it's hard to say there's any actual benefit to him. And therefore it's closer to a situation of Kofanamida Stone as far as your second question. Second, I want to address your first scenario in a second, but yeah. No, just that? on that point, about, yeah. I mean, what's, what's considered, how do we define benefit? You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm a sadist, I enjoy the pain of others. Okay, so that's, the that first, that's the first question. So the second, well, let's say there was some kind of more normal benefit. Let's say they could remain in some kind of married state where there was some kind of, there were good moments and bad moments, and they'll, they'll lose out the good moments if they get divorced, so then, which again is not so much the scenarios that we're dealing with today, where there's usually a real split between the two of them. But theoretically, there are cases in the Gemara where they haven't necessarily separated, and maybe there's some high moments, there's some better times, and so to say that he's getting nothing out of it doesn't necessarily describe every situation that's in the Gemara. I don't know that, because, like, is that really the case we're discussing, where, like, we're actually, like, we're talking about a guna where they're still, like, together at all? So nowadays, we're usually not. But in the case of the Gemara, when the Gemara talks about Kofin situations, some of the Kofin situations, they may still be together. So to say that they're all premised on the idea that there's no benefit, the Zenen of Azel Ochaser, is not necessarily going to answer all these situations. It may be relevant to the situation we're talking about today. So today, that's what I'm saying also, that when Roshachter has the view that simply not living together is going to be enough, so yes, in those situations, there's really no normal benefit to the marriage. Now, both of you asked, so what about a sadist? So first of all, yeah, we don't make a lot of sadists, but uh, but it, it lets to formulate the question. I mean, unfortunately, it's a very relevant point. Certainly, that does happen. Right? There's certainly people who feel like they're benefiting from prolonging somebody's pain. Or just, or just like being in power. Just yes, you know. right. So then that raises the question of, is there a 
for the purposes at least of Kofan on Lidah Stone, is there any kind of legitimacy to evil? Basically, so if the guy's a real stonemite in the other path, he really is a literal stonemite in the most extreme case. And in general, we saw the sugi last year, so it's relevant. We saw the sugi last year, so the problem is Zenana Bazella Chaser could mean two different things. And the word, the same words can mean two different things. And some Rishonim equate them, but there's a pretty big space between them. What do we mean? So, for example, the Gemara talks about you want somebody who lived in your house and you didn't know they got some free board, so now you want to charge them after the fact. You're not a hotel, you don't normally charge, but you want to charge somebody. So that's called Zenana Vazelachasar because the person benefited and didn't cost you anything. It didn't take away anything from you. You're not a hotel that normally charges, so there was no monetary loss. So there, you're not entitled to payment, but you're not evil for wanting payment because the idea that somebody likes a profit opportunity, so it may not be justified, but it doesn't make him evil for wanting it. So it's a Zen and a Vizelachaser in kind of a more normal sense. But the Gemara also uses a different sense where there's no potential benefit from you, but you just want the other guy not to have what he wants. So that's more of an evil type of Zen and a Vizelachaser. The same words can mean something else. Zen and that person would benefit and lo chaser to you, it's not going to matter one way or another, so why do you care if he benefits? So theoretically, the same words, which the Rishonim link, some of the Rishonim link, some don't, but they're not necessarily comparable. Right? One is a desire for profit, which is understandable but not justified, therefore not really evil, just not justified. And the other has got no profit, it's just about hurting somebody else where there's no profit for you either way. And that's more in how we picture stone in the more genuinely evil sense. So you hear the difference? So what are we talking about here? So if there's a situation where, let's say, again, we're not validating God forbidding his behavior, the question is just in terms of using the framework of Kofan Almida Stone to understand how it works. So is that the right language here? So it's also interesting. There was a major machlokas achronim about the following point. So what would you think about this? This is a topic that's hotly debated. So what would you think about the following issue? So Alpi Din Torah, and this is, we talked a little bit about different uh, changes in halacha through Prisbol and Chirstamis and the like and prenup and how some of them fit more and some of them fit less. So another area where there's been a major shift in how people practice compared to what the Torah describes is the area of Yerusha. So according to the Torah, if a man dies and he has sons and daughters, so all the property goes to his sons and there's no Yerusha at all to the daughters. And nowadays, so people often usually want to, maybe they should want to, give their assets to all their children equally. So there's a whole discussion about halachic will, which sounds like a halachic prenup and has some things in common with it. It's certainly in the same category. Of how to write a will so it will be consistent with both the letter and the spirit of the Torah's din when it comes to Yerusha. And that's its own discussion. So that we won't get into now. But let's say somebody wrote a... Let's say somebody, write, let's say somebody dies without a will. But just to make the situation a complicated situation simpler. So a man has sons and daughters, and he lives in America, and he dies without a will. So according to the halacha, 
all of his property goes to his sons, and his daughters don't get it all. According to American law, there was no will saying what should happen, so the American law will determine that the property should be divided equally among all the children, the boys and the girls. So here you have a situation where the girls, according to the enforced American law, will be given half of the, will give them whatever percentage of the property. So Alpi Din Torah, the boys will say that it's all coming to us. Now against assume there was no halachic will in place. So what are the girls obligated to do in this case? Let's say the government has a policy that we recognize the property rights of the daughters, and if the daughters are willing to let the boys have it all because of their religion, which is not our job, separation of church and state, we're enforcing civil law, so they'll have to sign a document saying they give up their rights, that they're willing to give this property that the law says is theirs, American law says is theirs, they're willing to give it up so the brothers have it all. So what would you say? Are the girls obligated to sign this document? Let's assume Alpidin Torah, the property belongs to the brothers, and they have no halachic right to it. Yeah? I mean, if, if, we, if it's a very, very good assumption, because he's in an attempt to write a will, it's a very, very good assumption that, this, that the father... I mean, we talked about this... So let's assume the, let's assume for the sake of this particular situation, the father hasn't expressed any preferences. So it's hard to call it a Mitzvah situation. And there's no will. If there's a will, then we could talk about whether the will is valid or whether... There's a will, there's a way. Right, with the will, if there's a will, there might be a way. <laughs> so if there's a will, some say if there's a will, there is a way, some say if a will, there might be a way. So if there was a will, it would be a different conversation. But let's assume that there is no will. So there is no way. So what does that mean? So civil law says, according to civil law, these daughters, what's going to be enforced by the civil authorities will allow the daughters to walk away with all this property. But the halacha says the property belongs to the brothers, and if they want that to happen, they're going to have to sign these legal documents to give up their rights. Are they mechuyiv to sign these documents? What do you say? Yeah? I mean, I would say, yeah, halakhuyiv the money is the, is, the, is the boys. Okay. And then they, and then they, they don't be stealing because they don't have the right to it. I'm not stealing. It's just uh, the U.S. government is giving me this. But they're giving you something that, the, that, I mean, logically speaking, the U.S. government shouldn't have been holding in the first place. should have went straight to the... You know. So the U.S. government is not Jewish. You know, they, said, they set up their own rules, and this is how they... Uh, so, I, okay, so fine. So Nadri tells you to be poor God. So that's how is they, that comparable? Is that what's happening? Like, I'm, I'm, like you, you, I don't think you can use the American government as an excuse. But the fact is, right now, the property, if they don't do anything, right, the Torah doesn't say anywhere that they have to sign a document to give up their property. So they don't do anything. Just, they can hand it over. Like, I don't, I, I, I'm not, you know, like... The details of how it gets there. I'm but assuming this is bank accounts, right? They're not going to be able to. The brothers are not going to be able to access the bank accounts unless the daughters sign these documents. Yeah, Shmuel. Like, I'm not. I'm not sure, but my gut would be they wouldn't have to, because okay. because like some of these some of these laws, like Kevin has tip laws like, mm-hmm. with uh, these type of things, I think aren't as endemic. I don't know if that's the word, but aren't as <laughs> so. What question? What do you like? It, like it's not the same thing as as other halachas. Like they're. They're there to provide like a structure of how to conduct business and make financial transactions. But you, we have concepts of like tonight where we 
can completely, well, like, not completely, but we can all do a lot of alterations towards the towards the baseline. So true, but that can be confusing a little bit. Though, just to say what, because also we'll learn if it's there. Problem is, first of all, when it comes to Yerusha, actually, Mara says we can't make it tonight because the Torah calls it Chukas uh, Mishpat. There are ways of making a halachic well, which is not our subject for today, but how that works is a little bit involved because we can't actually make it tonight. You have to do it a different way. But even if that's true, but Lamaisa, let's assume it didn't happen. Right? So right now, Alti Halacha, we have no indication what the father wanted. Right? Let's assume the father only wanted the boys to have it because that was his uh, understanding of things. So, Maisa, for that purpose, right? saying like maybe the U.S. law helps define the scope of what the father wanted. I mean, in light, in light of, in light of the father not saying anything, they know the country they live in. And but that's not the premise. You know, we have to go pretty far with this for kind of different ways to assign that. We don't even know. Even if the father did write a will and said this, it would still be a machlokis. But so certainly we have, no, let's assume for the purpose of this conversation, the father said, I want it to only go to the sons. But he didn't actually put that into writing. So the law doesn't see a will here. So the law, as far as they're concerned, bless the daughters, keep this. So I just want to tell you before we run out of time, we can explore this a little bit more. But just to give you the background that's relevant here, so there was a major machlokes posting about this. Some thought similar to Eric that there's just no there's no question here. It's cut and dried. The girls are gazlanim if they were to keep this, and therefore, so they are certainly obligated to sign. And some thought that this was a category of kofenal midasdom, because halachically there's no benefit to them. They're not allowed to use this. So the only reason that they're going to refuse and let the brothers just have a, a easy access to their halakhically assigned property is because of something that has no benefit to them. So therefore, kofanal midasdom. But others say that, no, it's midasdom, that there's profit here to be made, that if they're going to say that, listen, I'll sign, but uh, I want you to settle with me. Right? If I leave things as it is, so we're going to get equal to you. So maybe we'll sign and uh, we'll feel better about things, but I'll get, uh, give me a hand. Yeah. How is there any side to say there's no benefit to the, to the brothers of getting all the property, right? But the brothers for sure benefit. The question is to the daughters. Well, is the, is the, isn't that just... Oh, I mean... Well, again, are we, are we, saying, are we saying that... And just because there's no halakh benefit, like, they can go spend the money, like, no, like... No, the, 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 the other side, to the daughters. Right? Practically speaking, they have huge benefit, and this is more than the vindictive husband, right? This isn't just their vindictiveness. They got all these assets. But if the halacha doesn't recognize they're entitled to those assets, so would we call that kofen al midas Well, I would say, well, I don't say, I don't think that just because they, they can go spend the money. Like, it's not like they, they have no right. benefit of keeping it. Right. Physically, that's the benefit. Hashkafically, whatever, there's no benefit to it because it's. So here's where the, the machlokas lies. That's the point. Right. right? That they have access to a lot of money now. If they sign it away, they will lose all that access. So, are they mechuyiv to do that for free because they're not entitled halachically to that what money? What about just the fact that the brothers are with the money? Like, how is that not, how is that not the most relevant point? So, maybe it's okay that uh, that's, you know, the Torah gives the money to the brothers, but right now, in order for that to happen, you're asking us to do something which the Torah doesn't specifically obligate us to do. Now, again, there's certainly postmen who see it the way you see it and say that, no, essentially, by letting this happen, you are passively stealing. And in order to save yourself from passively stealing, you're obligated to sign it. And with that, they'll say also a bezin can be kofa because they're not entitled to any of this. 
So it's Midas Tom, that they're basically making the brothers suffer, and what they're holding on to is not halachically theirs, so you can't call that a benefit. While others will say that, no, that they are benefiting, not even, even if the money is not theirs, but they have potential to make a settlement. You could say, listen, I want my trouble to go to the court and sign this, so pay me for it. And decide that you'll give me a you know, sort of one safer that compared this to a celebrity who's being asked to sign an autograph and he knows that the autograph will then end up on eBay. So I said, okay, so you want me to put my name on a piece of paper and you're going to take that piece of paper and profit, so I want to share. So you're asking me to sign this document so that you can access your money. So, okay, so it looks like a lawyer is going to charge for that, so I want to charge for that also, right? Which maybe isn't such a terrible comparison. In fact, the same way, the lawyer is going to charge you for just helping you access what is legally yours. So maybe the sisters can say the same thing. Right? So right now, you can't get your bank accounts open because the courts don't recognize your right to it. So you need me to take the trouble of signing a document in order to be able to access your fortune. So pay me the same way you pay the lawyers. So this actually was a significant mafalkas. And the great postkin who did come to the conclusion that, uh, especially since nowadays the minig is to have a different kind of arrangement. So Russia, for example, just to mention uh, one of the most well-known, we talked about is Russia Weiss, who's a truth about this, where his position is that he thinks, on the one hand, instinctively, he thinks like it was, <coughs> that it doesn't sound just to say that they should be able to hold this over the brothers' heads. But on the other hand, since practically speaking anyway, most people settle with the daughters or maybe make it all equal, so since that's probably the meaning anyway, and since there is a machokis about this, that to have a settlement probably is practically what is going to be the way to go. So more to say about this, a uh, fascinating topic, but it goes to the whole question of just what the parameters of kofamidos don't might be and how it can affect this. So part of kviya is also if you hope people pass the time and they have no choice as a captive audience. So I don't know if we have a license for that, so let's government uh, and God willing, we have a lot to do. And we have a volunteer.